Welcome to the Far North Podcast, where we explore everything we love about the Highlands and Islands of Scotland. Each week we research a topic that fascinates us, but which we don't know enough about. Then we bring in an expert to correct what we found. Let's go Far North. Hey Pete. Hey Matt, how you doing? Very good, thanks. Very good. Good. Now, I, I understand you, you're going to tell me what we're doing today. <laughs> Always, of course. Well, you'll remember in our Cromarty episode, we talked about these. You drive over the Black Isle um, and you descend down into Cromarty and unless you have very focused tunnel vision on the end of the road, it's pretty hard to ignore the fact there are some humongous oil rigs lining the middle of the Cromarty Firth. Um, and even if you don't drive to Cromarty, even if you're just going over Cromarty Bridge up the A9 towards Tain, it's pretty hard to ignore them. Yeah. And and having been there recently, there's even more because, you know, what are we, the middle of, uh, the, well, the beginning of December 2020. And the oil price is very low because of the effects of COVID. And um, that means it's not profitable, I understand, to have a oil rig in the North Sea at the moment. So you need to tow it into the Cromarty Firth and rest it, refurbish it. Um, do repairs on it or just leave it until someone else buys it and then when the oil price is at a point at which it's profitable to drag it back out again. Um, so there's even more there at the moment. And they're really interesting kind of architectural engineering features and I know people in Cromarty are completely torn. Some love them and think they provide a really interesting backdrop to the landscape and others hate them and think they're kind of really invasive. I'm a bit on the fence with that. I suppose... But my question is more is they're right there and you can't ignore them. And actually they symbolize for me on my very basic understanding, a huge amount of Scottish economy. And certainly in the past, the Scottish economy linked to North Sea oil. I don't know much about that. I don't know much about that at all. Yeah, neither do I. I, Like you, I've seen them and it's really really entangled, isn't it? It's really connected, the idea of Scottish... Uh, economy and nationhood even in the discussions around independence you know oil featured really heavily in that and I've looked at them I mean like lots of stuff we talk about I've looked at it but I don't really know anything about it I can kind of imagine maybe I know do I, do I know a little bit that people fly back and forth on helicopters when they're out at sea in the North Sea oil fields and it's shared somehow with Norway I guess and they're incredibly rich but that's kind of a run out there. That's about all I know. Likewise, and I find oil and gener- and energy generation, forgive me for saying it in such a way, but I kind of find them, slight, despite knowing nothing about them, I'm kind of fascinated by it. it it's such a absolutely, fun, absolutely fundamental part of Western civilization, or no, to be fair, global civilization. It, it, is, it is what we run on, and yet so many of us are completely oblivious to it and it's only when you drive over the Black Isle and you see these enormous structures kind of parked up are you reminded that actually (laughs) there's a huge amount of work that goes into your ability to turn on your light switches or drive in your car or power your and warm your home and yet and it's a massive part of the global economy and yet most of the time we're oblivious to it. Yeah that's definitely the root of one of the reasons I find this interesting, actually. So one of them is that aesthetic point. I think it looks great. And we've got an oil painting of the oil rigs in Cromarty up in our house. I think they look really good. But also it's the sense that that's a that's real work, right? That's really producing something that we all rely on. And I, I feel slightly, and I feel very aware that my one of my daughters, when she was about four, when asked at school what her dad's job was, she said, chatting. And, you know... <laughs> It's true. Like in most of the jobs I've done, including this one, you know, that is that it comes down to that, doesn't it? Well, you do it Whereas, very well. <laughs> well, thanks. It's very different, isn't it? If to, to go out onto an oil rig offshore and start pumping oil, is that what they do? I've no idea. You start kind of, yeah, yeah, what happens? I really want to know as well. That's a good idea. See, Pete, that right there is why you chat for a living. Yeah, exactly. Chat. <laughs> Apparently, I don't listen because I have chatted to quite a few people who work in the oil industry, but I still appear to know nothing about it. So there's another quirk of the Cromarty Firth that I'm fascinated by and, and maybe maybe will complicate the task you have in this episode, but tough. 
there's this really fascinating juxtaposition of old and new in that on the other side of the Firth from Cromarty at Nig, they are constructing, I'm told, about 130 wind turbine um, bases and fitting 130 wind turbines to go out to the Moray East wind farm. Um, and so there's this, this real old meets new in the Cromarty Firth of, you know, declining oil supplies in the North Sea, kind of, you know, a, a very, a, a much maligned now and um, controversial industry, you know, the, the, the fossil fuel industry has is, is had its time in the view of many commentators. And then, and then literally kind of on its doorstep, they are constructing the future, potentially, if it is the future. And I know many people are um, on the fence about that. But they are, they are building wind turbines where they used to um, refurbish oil refineries, which I guess plays into that bigger question around how does Scotland get its energy and where does that come from and what role does that play in the far north in particular in this part of the world? Um, it's certainly been a huge driver of economic growth in the past. Is that still the case um, or not? So I think that's the task. It's quite a big one this time, but I know you're up to it, Peter. So go find me. What am I asking you? I guess I'm just interested in the extent to which oil still plays a prominent role in the Scottish economy and its energy generation but also yeah what is the story of these alternatives and um and it's so often hidden particularly when you think of the narrative of the highlands and islands and we go back to our usual stereotypes of whiskey and distilleries and everything all being neat and clean and tidy and um, picturesque but actually what there's a there's a bit of an underbelly here which is you know the place needs to generate its own energy and energy for the rest of scotland and the uk um, as well as export it, I assume. So, yeah, what's that all about? Scotland's oily underbelly, did you just say? That's the title right there. I like it. Okay, I'm going to go and get stuck. I'm pretty sure this this is not niche, though. This is big, but it's not niche. So I'm hoping somebody's written an article or two about this somewhere. I expect so. Go, go find the underbelly. Great, I'm off. Right, Matt, I'm back. I'm back from my task to investigate the oily underbelly of Scotland, as you were pleased to call it. Welcome back. I hope you got suitably dirty. I, I did. Well, no, I didn't at all. I just I watched quite a few YouTube videos and I read some dry articles. Some of them had quite a lot of graphs in them, more graphs than I'm comfortable with. Generally, I quite like reading history books, but essentially, as soon as we get to like graphs of wool exports in the 17th century i'm i'm out of there and mm. so it's not my comfort zone graphs but i did read some because of my dedication okay well podcast. well done well done the the chatty man has stretched his <laughs> skill set and i yeah what do you got well so i will i'm going to talk about a, a film i watched in a second but i mean the first thing i want to say is the people who do this work are worthy of our respect this is serious stuff like this is not having said my job is mainly chatting their job is not mainly chatting but particularly offshore and so I, I i watched and read i guess more than anything else about offshore oil drilling um and that i mean it looks like a military operation it looks like a military deployment you know this is people going on chinooks back in the day i think maybe less so now in helicopters out to oil platforms um, in kind of safety gear for a three-week deployment, um, separated from their friends and family, working 12 hours on, 12 hours off, shifts seven days a week for three weeks. Um, this looks like hard work, <laughs> hard, hard work. And really, really interesting, the range of stuff. So, the, I mean, I guess I should have realised this, but an oil platform was a floating town out in the middle of the sea. So they've got... They've got everything that you would need there. So they've got medics, they've got operations people, they've got cinemas, they've got a gym, they've got, uh, again, in common with a military deployment, they've got to focus on food. You know, they've got to make sure people are, are fed really well. So it was really, uh, it was really compelling actually to to look at some of the experiences that people have had and how it's been recorded on on film. Um, the best one I saw, I think, was a short film 
called Head to Sea, Heart at Home by Orchard Media, which is about a um, the, a group of people, well, little snapshots of people's lives on board an offshore platform in the North Sea, just off Aberdeen. And yeah, you've got people dangling off the side, abseiling, uh, dancing around on deck, but and you know laughing and joking and rough and tumble, but all whilst talking about the twelve-hour shift they've just done and the millions and millions of pounds worth of oil they have to funnel correctly and the safety procedures that are going on to prevent, you know, huge disasters, which you know as you'll be aware have happened in that part of the world, kind of Piper Alpha, etc. So it's, it's it's fraught, like it's really dangerous mm. and potentially isolating. So just massive respect to the people who do it. So what is the tough? What is the tough bit? Well, I mean, so I, I should be clear. This video I watched was very uplifting. It was all about how it's a great job to do and how everyone bands together. But I think I would find it really tough to be on a platform in sometimes twenty-five meter high seas, like huge raging. There's videos you can see of these huge waves, the kind of things I thought you'd get in the middle of the North Atlantic, smashing into these towers, and to 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 be sitting amid that huge kind of lattice of massive iron bars in the middle of the sea bobbing bobbing about i mm. think i'd find that i mean i think i'd probably find it pretty scary to be honest with the responsibilities you say of of kind of having the safety of safety of others and safety of keeping oil where it is but also this kind of enormously expensive product yeah being being drilled for and piped there's got to be a lot of pressure, I think. And I was actually, I, I guess I often assume that these people are going to be just, you know, so tough that they're just in a different universe to me and would never be concerned about, you know, anything worrying them. But so I was kind of, I was interested and pleased, I guess, to see in this video, the subject of, you know, how people just cope mentally came up just a little bit briefly. But it's worth just, um, uh, I'm just going to play this clip uh, just to hearing two people on the video um just discussing that that's, that's an aspect. I think it just, like we said before, you know, the, the one you've got to be able to get on with people. You've got to treat the being offshore quite light-heartedly. If you take it too seriously, then you, you, you just won't, you won't survive. No. And if you don't get on with people, you won't survive. You need to get on with people. And you also need um, at least one person in this whole working outfit that you can go to with a problem or just want to speak about something. Everybody needs to speak to somebody. That's really interesting. I'd, I suppose when we think about, well, as I did, the, the rigs and the structures, I, maybe I was thinking of... You, what am I saying? It's because it's easy to lose the fact that there's real people living real lives, and like so much, so many things like this, it, it relies on people, it relies on people taking risks and doing that work to make it happen. And again, yeah, I, I guess a bit like when we were talking before you researched, that brings home to me even more how much we take it for granted. Yeah, and and how hard it is to span that gap, you know, to to know that they're out there, but to imagine the lives of people who are in that. I find it really difficult. Okay, yeah, so clear idea there about some of the personal stories, but if we zoom out. So one of the things I was interested in, like, so we, I've seen these in the in the Cromarty Firth. Like, how, how is that? Like, why aren't, how, I didn't, I had no idea they moved about. It was quite surprising to me. So I couldn't, and I couldn't really visualise, like, are they, are they stuck in the seabed or are they floating on the surface? And so it turns out both. There's various different types of oil rigs. Some of them are, um, they raise their uh, their kind of stanchion, their legs in the ground up and then can be towed around. Others are fixed permanently into the seabed and that keeps them where they are. Others float on the surface and they're kind of anchored to the to the bottom and others are kind of half half and half. There are some that are like an iceberg. You know, the majority of them is under the sea surface, like a floating tower and then the the platform on top. So one, so one of them, these pylons un, underwater that are fixed to the seabed, is so big that before the Burj Khalifa in Dubai was built, it was the tallest man-made structure. It was 600 metres high. It's just that the 600 metres were under the sea, 
rather than above the ground, so you couldn't see it. But it, yeah, it was the, in the Gulf of Mexico, Petronius, six hundred meters tall. That's phenomenal. I mean, and I, I am my brain can't even compute the kind of start, you know, the starting point to getting to creating a structure like that. Yeah. So should we Should we build an oil rig? Yeah. Got some metal. Let's get started. I and I would invite you to guess how much you think it would cost if you wanted to build yourself an oil rig in dollars, in US well, dollars. Well, I mean, I'm not sure my wife has put it on the DIY list in the next uh, quarter. Get but, cracking. Um, maybe she should. Depends if you have a spare one billion dollars. <laughs> uh, let me check. No. I mean, you've got to make a lot of, and I guess if, I suppose if you're you're in the right industry to be able to make that back that initial outlay but it's going to take some time yeah but I, that's clearly why they're being stored in the chromatic firth as you said because yeah it's expensive and there was a couple of years this is back to my graph work that i was doing when the cost of doing this was just prohibited it wasn't making any money in fact you'll remember was it this year or last year if i'd done my research properly i would know the price of a barrel of oil became negative so mm. you, they were ta- mm. they were paying people to take them away Mm. so you're losing money but also it cost a billion dollars to make this thing so you don't just want to scrap it you need to keep it no i bet for the yeah it's not something you make in a hurry to come back up okay so they're offshore they're floating or they're nailed to the ground underwater maybe not nailed to the ground and then there's pipelines that bring oil back to shore into a terminus on on the shore and then it can be moved around and possibly put into ships after that and shipped off somewhere else if it's being exported but you only keep on the platform the people you absolutely have to have there because it's so expensive and difficult and costly in all kinds of ways for people to be on board there. So you keep a lot of skills offshore and you fly people back and forth. So helicopter transit back and forth is really critical to this, which means that Aberdeen Airport is the world's busiest heliport. Is it really? It is. I, mean, I was surprised. I'm, of of all, the, all the accolades I would place in the north of Scotland, I wouldn't necessarily have said busiest heliport. I wasn't really going looking for that accolade, but once I stumbled across it, I thought, oh, there's a thing. And that that's still true as of now, as opposed to... I mean, according of... to the uh, scant Google research I did, I haven't triple sourced this as the BBC would have done, but it's... Um, okay, you know, I'll take your word for it. That's 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 fascinating. I'll put mm. my reputation on the line. Crikey, that's that's quite a... Yeah. So, yeah, I'll and, take it. And they're all going out into, this, into the North Sea oil fields, as you know, which are shared with... Uh, Norway and there are different fields where they're surveyed so you use helicopters and ships and all kinds of things to try and figure out where to go and drill oil and that's divided into blocks within fields and the fields all have names so oh I can feel a shipping I have a I feel like a shipping forecast moment coming on it is an interactive shipping forecast moment I have the North Sea oil fields nomenclature quiz for you <laughs> So Christmas come early. Exactly. So I'm going to say a word and you're going to tell me if it really is a North Sea oil field or not. Are you ready? Nice. I'm ready. I am ready and let's go. Okay. Gannet. Oh yeah, that's definitely an oil field. That is indeed an oil field. Cod. No. That is an oil field. Oh, come on. Someone could be more imaginative than that. It's only three letters. Beryl. Like Auntie Beryl. Like Auntie Beryl. You've made that up, Pete. I have not made that up. I do not have the wit to make it up. That is, in fact, a North Sea oil field. Crikey. About Cromarty. Uh, uh, Cromarty feels too c- close to land to be an oil field. That is not an oil field. You're correct. Yes. Florence? Yes. That is not. See, I've tricked you oh. there with Beryl, you see. I've I, I set that one up rather nicely. Do you know now, what came to mind there? It was Florence and the machine, and I was thinking of oil rigs as being like machines. Anyway. It's a good it's a good it's good, but it's not right. Okay. Now how about frig? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yes indeed. Maureen. The Maureen oil field. They appear to a lot of these are named after aunties. I'm I'm it's unclear to me why. Yeah. I mean it doesn't I've got this image of some Baron of oil sitting at a desk somewhere in Dallas, kind of deciding that in homage to his great aunt Maureen. How many Maureens are there in Texas? Well, I don't know, but someone will email in and tell us. It's a backhanded compliment, isn't it, to name an oil field after your gran? But I'm going to go with yes for Maureen. Maureen is indeed. How about Balmoral? Yeah, Maureen. Mm -hmm. 
Maureen no, Beryl. You wouldn't want such royal association with such a dirty industry, surely. Balmoral Bal- is, in fact, an oil field. Two, two great sources of financial and cultural wealth for our nation, as I'm sure you'd agree, Matthew. Absolutely. Boulder, last one. Is this some pun on Boulder Dash? You're going to do a pun on Boulder Dash, aren't you? I would delight to do a, pl- a pun on Boulder Dash, but Boulder is in okay, fact... Okay, in which case, I'm going to say it is. It is. I kind of led yes. you to that. Yes, it is. Well done. Okay, so more importantly, did I win? Yeah, uh, you you won. That was very good. Okay, good. Thank you very much. The prize is yet to be determined. A billion dollars of oil? A billion dollars of oil. That would be... That's a lot now. Um, right, so... But this all... Why does this all matter? Like, it's quite a lot of money, right? Um... I, th- I think about pl- countries that make oil. I think of Saudi Arabia. Would you believe if I told? Would you believe me if I told you that at the peak of North Sea oil production, we produced one third of what Saudi Arabia was producing in 1999? Scotland produced, or the North Sea produced, a third of what Saudi Arabia was. The UK produced for all from the North Sea one third of what Saudi Arabia was producing at at its peak in in 99. Do you know what I actually would? I think I actually would just based on this, how big Saudi is and how big their oil fields are. Yeah, that 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 feels right. But then we had the greatest decline of any oil producing country to the point where we became a net importer rather than exporter, um, which is a bit of a shame. Is it? I don't know. Actually, I have no idea if it's a shame. It feels like a shame. I have no idea. Well, it's probably a shame if you're one of those people who have worked very hard in very difficult conditions. Um on those rigs which are now sitting stacked up in the Cromarty Firth without any idea about when they're going back out again. So, yeah, I mean, it is, it is a the economic impact of that, I imagine, is, we're probably still feeling. But hopefully, as you said, renewables is the is going to fill that gap, both both the gap in energy production and in jobs and the economy. Mm. That's that's the hope. Mm. So, and it's, uh, it's quite remarkable. I didn't realise how, how much this is turning around, but... In the first first quarter of 2020, renewable energy made up half of Britain's electricity generation for the first time, I think. So it really is... Um, well, that's much higher than I would have guessed. Yeah, it's, it's really mm. coming up. In fact, in the course of my researches, I downloaded an app onto my phone, which tells me at any moment, this is how interesting I am, tells me at any moment how, where our energy is coming from at now. Right now, oh, gas, 50%. Wind thirteen percent. It's not as windy as it was. It's not windy outside. Not windy, but so nuclear fourteen percent. This is good content, isn't it? But so you can track this on your on your phone anytime you want. Anytime you want to. On Tinder? No. It's called what's it called? GB Grid Carbon Intensity. I'm on it. There you go. I'm all over it. Um, so yeah, renewable energy clearly the future. There are wind farms. I've seen them around, but I don't know. Again, I kind of realised I was running out of steam on all this. Um, you may have Good. inferred that from the name, the oil field quiz, and the kind of dull recitation of stats. I mean, running out of steam so, was a nice energy pun, though. Thanks for throwing that one in. That what you get? That's a bonus. It's a Brucey bonus. Okay, one. so I, I'm sensing maybe you got to the end of the road, and someone helped you. Yeah. So I I got to the almost the beginning of the road. I would say. And then I realised I this was the point to tap out and um, bring in Magnus Davidson as the expert to help us through this. Uh, he Magnus is a researcher at the University of the Highlands and Islands, and he's a specialist in the interaction between the environment and the economy and people and communities. And so he knows a lot about energy. So yeah, so Magnus is going to uh, talk to us and steer us on the right path to understanding energy in Scotland. That is great. I don't think I've ever felt more relieved to be joined by an expert on the podcast than I do at this exact moment. Thanks. I'm going to take that in the spirit in which I'm sure it was intended. Do you see our parents there? Always find a bed for us, though there is no space to spare. Right, so hi, Magnus. Thanks very much for joining us on the on Far North. Really good to have you with us. No problem. Thank you very much for inviting me along. Just a big fan of um, all your content and what you're doing, so it's really nice to be asked to contribute. 
Great, thanks. Yeah, pleased to have you here. And also, you know, we should recognise that you've been a bit of a help as we've gone along and keeping us on the straight and narrow, making sure that we're not um, not going off uh, off the rails on some of our content. So, yeah, thanks. I've said that to you before we recorded, but thanks on the record as well for helping us out. So, and whereabouts are you? Where are we speaking to you from? So, I am based in Thurso, um, in the far north, uh, here in Caithness, just Scotland's most northerly town. Um, famous for nuclear energy, which most folk, I think, wouldn't, um, or many folk wouldn't think of. But yeah, on the north coast of Scotland, on a very great day outside. But so, I mean, you cut straight into it, energy, like nuclear energy up there. I mean, this is what we're talking about today. And as ever, I am the uh, uh, in a position of not knowing very much about the subject at all, apart from at a surface level. So I'm kind of a, if, if someone says nuclear energy to me, I do kind of, I, I can dredge up the name Dune Ray from somewhere, but probably not sure I could point to it on a map. And I've got a conceptual image of some domes or something uh, in, involved in that. So I'm just keen to hear from you about, um, given there's so much about energy in the Highlands, why is that? And kind of what is, what's, what's the story here? It's an excellent question. And it's good to, to, to recognise that the Highlands and um, probably going forward and to a certain extent looking past as well, the Highlands and Islands um, are very much an energy region. And I think we've come to understand that a bit more, more recently in terms of renewable energy. But when we're thinking offshore oil and gas, um, yeah, uh, Highlands and Islands are very much um, as well as East Coast where we found um, Scotland's energy. But it really goes back hundreds and hundreds of years and it all kind of comes back to the resources that are found in the highlands. The highlands are obviously a very big region for better or worse depending how we look at it Um, but as a region as a whole yeah we've got incredibly resource rich so going back hundreds if not thousands of years we've looked um, at um, biomass wood energy um, and um, that was probably one of the first Highland resources, energy resources that were exploited and we saw the loss of the likes of the Caledonian forest. However, moving forward to, to the more um, modern times, we've actually got a really rich and diverse um, mixture of energy. So I use uh, the, the Highlands as a fantastic example of some of the more energy sources, energy sources that we think of more conventionally. Um, the likes of wind energy or hydro, as you said, the oil rigs parked up in the Cromarty Firth, a fantastic example of uh, our, our oil and gas heritage here. Um, but other industries as well. So less known fact is that Brora um, was a, a coal town. Um, when we think of coal in Scotland, we think of Fife, Ayrshire, uh, and these very traditional mining communities. But um, yeah, there's uh, um, Brora was built on coal effectively, and a lot of early industry came out of Brora off the back of coal, whether that was salt panning, whether it was distilling Scotland's uh, other national treasure whiskey, um, or whether it was even brick. So when you drive through Brora on the left-hand side of the main road, there's these five, six um, brick houses, red brick houses, that seem really kind of out of place in a Highland town, um, but make a lot of sense when you realise that they were fired uh, the bricks were fired from the coal resource. Highlands obviously have a hell of a lot of heat, um, traditionally more of an indigenous fuel source. Um, one of my favourite um, discussions to be had um, is around peat. My family just sit and take, take uh, a, a joke about me spending all my time in bogs um, because as much as I love energy, I also love the, 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 the ecology of peatlands as well. So, I mean, I was interested there about the forest. So that I, I heard you say two things there. One is that in getting hold of this energy, that has shaped the landscape and those trees, but also that the landscape has dictated where we get the energy from in the kind of the peat bog. So there's a kind of interesting thing there. So on the on the on the trees, I'm familiar with the North Highlands that drive up to you know the the very north coast, what looks like an untouched a glacial valley that's never seen a human being or a tree or an animal of any kind it looks like it's literally just been hewn out of the living rock and then with a kind of smear of some lichen on top of it or something from a distance is that not what it was always like then is that is that is that was wooded some of it was it yeah um again another really interesting question so the whole of the highlands the whole of scotland the whole of uk but particularly the highlands um, are very much um, cultural landscapes managed landscapes so what might be perceived as being wild or wilderness 
um, is very much had the footprint of man um, walking over it and dictating and managing it for thousands of years. Um, so uh, kind of more in the southern and the west coast of the highlands, we would have had uh, a lot more trees, Scots pine, the Caledonian forest. As we stretched more into the north highlands, these would make way for kind of birch woods and peatland. Um, we also have a climatic um, uh, aspect to all of this in that humans have been here in the North Highland for thousands and thousands and thousands of years and the climate's changed throughout that whole period. So the peatlands came along maybe about 6,000 years ago um, and uh, covered a lot of the area where um, we would have had traditional birchlands. Um, but yeah, man has come along and um, chopped a lot of these trees down for energy, for fuel, um, for building materials, for some of the amazing um, boats that we used to go and explore and in some cases kind of conquer the world. And then so for nuclear, why is, why is Dunray in the north of Scotland? It, it has to be on the coast, is it, for water? But why, why is it so far away from London? Well, there's a few different contributing factors, and the one that we always say, and the one with most truth, is very much that it's um, further away from population centres. So um, the, the Dunray complex is very much set around UK's fast breeder reactor programme um, in the post-war period. Um, and there was a number of contributing factors as to why it was located in Caithness. Um, the, the, the general consensus is that, um, yeah, away from a population um, or large populations, just in case anything went wrong. The second of which and why it's located at Dunray itself was it needed to be um, built on uh, MOD land. Um, so Dunray had a, a, an old airfield from the war. Um, and the third of which, um, which is probably less of a point, but I think still equally as important to and bring into conversation is that the local MP at the time lobbied quite hard um, that they were far away from a population. They had this old airfield um, and he, he could see the, um, had the foresight to see the benefit that might come in from this larger industry, um, which is very, um, has been very true if we look what we're now 60, over 60 years since Dunray came along and the town of Thurzo tripled from 3,000 up to nine or 10,000. We had new houses built. We had jobs very much for generations. We also have the two smaller reactors um, built by Rolls-Royce at HMS Vulcan, which is next door. Um, and they're what um, our, our um, nuclear deterrent submarines run from. So there's also um, this military aspect, the fast breeder reactor program, of course, had very militaristic undertones and looking um, at plutonium. Um, so yeah, it's, a, it's really interesting how we have these kind of global, national and then regional elements to the energy development here in Caithness itself. So does that mean you've got, so these are skilled jobs, right? I guess you don't just pile anybody in to go and be a, to work in a nuclear reactor or two. So is there like a concentration of nuclear engineers up on the, the in the north coast of Scotland that you wouldn't find elsewhere? Exactly. The um, there's Dunry's been through various forms. So we're in the decommissioning stage right now, which I'll get to. But the, uh, a really interesting and funny joke, I think, that went around was that the Soviets during the Cold War could wipe out um, most of the UK's fast breeder um, workforce and expertise by just dropping one bomb on Thurzal High Street during the Saturday <laughs> afternoon because of the concentration um, of the knowledge in one area. But yeah, you're right. It also means to this day, even though that we're in the decommissioning phase, um, because Dunray was knocked up so quickly and um, was required to be knocked up so quickly, they may be um, and I don't think I'm unfair in saying this, they maybe didn't think about um, tearing it down when they were building it. So, um, yeah, it was put up in a, a, a ramshackle way, shall we say, sometimes, and not the most sophisticated management plans at times. So it's a really complex decommissioning job at the minute, which requires a huge amount of skill, huge amount of expertise, which is really good for the local area here. High wages, lots of jobs. Um, but also obviously poses a challenge as we're decommissioning what happens afterwards. Yeah, that's, and I want to come on to talk to you about the, the future in a second, but perhaps we should just finish the tour. So we've, got, we've, we've done trees, we've got peat, we've got nuclear power, we've mentioned oil, so, um, which is obviously 
you know, it's a huge topic at the kind of political level, the geopolitical level of oil and Scotland. But when people say oil and Scotland, do they mean the Highlands primarily or is it is there more to it than that? Um, there's a lot more to it. I'm obviously biased in the prism that I'm very much interested in is through the, 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 the Highlands and Islands aspect. But um, I think even taking um, one of your previous podcasts on Cromarty, I think um, Inge alluded to the fact that um, that that Nig was a huge employer across the across the Firth. Um, you have that industrial or post-industrial landscape with the oil rigs all the way up and down the Cromarty Firth. Um, in the Highlands, it was a, a huge still to this day is a very large employer. Um, what's interesting these days is that perhaps rather than five thousand people working across two yards in Easter Ross. Um, you have thousands of people who are working all across the world, flying in, flying out for a couple of weeks at a time, um, but very much basing and rooting themselves in the Highlands. So, for example, here in Caithness, we have loads of um, um, predominantly men working offshore, whether it's in the North Sea or whether it's in Brazil, South America, um, who effectively fly in and fly out for the work. So they're not working here, but they're basing themselves here. Wages are coming back here. Um, the, the money's very much coming back. So um, it's a really interesting one um, that the, the oil and gas is still a huge employer and a huge contributor um, at a local socioeconomic level here, which means the challenge is uh, really, really big um, as we look um, to kind of face these global climate crisis challenges. Um, what visitors to the Highlands might also notice is that we have an abundance of wind energy. Um, People looking at the Cromarty Firth these days will see the um, incoming and outgoing uh, offshore uh, wind turbines and associated works there. Um, so we are entering this transition. Here in Caithness, for example, um, we service the, uh, the UK's um, uh, or Scotland's largest offshore wind farm, the Beatrice Wind Farm in the Murray Firth. Um, and you can see the jobs and the benefit that's come in from that in the, in the WIC area. So... So I have noticed that. So I was in Cromarty the other day and uh, you see these ships with the most unlikely looking things on top of them. Again, I'm, my specialist vocabulary here extends to things. So there's these massive kind of stanchions on um, like, I don't know how many, six or eight loaded on the deck of this ship. And they're like three or four times higher than the ship itself. And you think, like, what? How can that even stay upright? How is this working? My fundamental grasp on physics, never mind energy, is challenged by these things. And then it just like sails away out to sea, carrying these huge, great platforms on top of them. Um, and it's beautiful to watch. But so where's it going? So it's going to this field just in the Murray Firth. Yeah. So these are um, what we would call steel jackets um, or things, maybe is a better technical term. But yeah, <laughs> these amazing steel jackets. Um, and this is a whole story in itself, a fascinating story. So the, 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 the yard that the ships are coming into Global Energy's NIG Energy Park um, has historically built these jackets for the oil and gas industry. That's the whole reason it came to being was to build these kind of structures for the offshore oil and gas industry. However, um, you'll notice that these jackets are not being built at NIG. These jackets are very much coming in from elsewhere. So this is a large part of the discussion in how we transition to a low carbon future or a net zero future here in Scotland um, and the politics of this. So these jackets are coming in from elsewhere in the world because they can be produced and built cheaper. And they're sailed in, um, they're all congregated at NIG and then they're sailed back out again, still to Scottish waters, but to be plonked on the seabed with a turbine on top. So that's a really interesting story of kind of mixed groups, different groups of people all contributing to the current picture of energy in, in the Highlands. So I imagine there we've well, the tour we've just done includes people who are cutting peat with spades to stick into their stoves at home up to international oil workers flying into and as you just said into, into wind engineers flying or flying around the international level all focused on this area. Which is quite, that's quite a span, isn't it? That's Definitely. It's hugely diverse. And it's not just these are um, not single entities without any interactions between each other. 
um, they, they all build and build on each other. So we have a um, infrastructure from the oil and gas industry that's now been used for the offshore wind energy uh, industry. They're all interlinked and all build up this energy mosaic in the Highlands. It's, I find really quite interesting. So, uh, what, so I, I guess the question is, what about the future? So, what's um, so we've got natural resources, we've got a landscape that's changed hugely over time. We've got local communities with loads of expertise. We've got open connections to the world over sea and yeah, air and land. What's kind of what's exciting you and what's worrying you about the future of energy in the area? What's particularly interesting, I think, is that we can approach some of the um, global climate crisis on two fronts here in Highlands. First of which is the natural resources that we have. So going back to the peat um, and the wood, um, we have a lot of um, um, peatlands and forests and natural environment here in the Highlands. So peatlands, for example, are an amazing carbon store as well as a carbon sink if we look after them well, if they're not degraded, if we don't drain them. Um, so in the Highlands, we're looking at possibly or um, not quite there, but we're getting there and actually being net zero already in that our um, peatlands and our woods absorb enough carbon um, to offset the emissions that we've got. We're not quite there. I think we're at about 0.8 of a tonne per person in Highland compared to something like four or five tonnes for Glasgow or Edinburgh, um, up to around eight or nine tonnes per person for some of our island communities because of the challenge of uh, um, the the ferries, effectively, that's quite interesting. So you can draw a, you can draw a boundary around that Highland area, and that's nearly. Does that mean I can uh, I can rent a Range Rover and drive around with it in second gear for as for as long as I like without feeling bad about it? Well, that is the problem with drawing arbitrary lines around various areas when we're talking about global challenges. Um, but it's it's interesting nonetheless. I think to kind of highlight. Um, what what the area can um, do and within uh, these kind of um, questions. So the peatlands are absorbing loads of carbon, storing loads of carbon. If we're talking about the peatlands in Caithness and Sutherland, we actually hold a hundred years worth of uh, the UK's industrial emissions. The last hundred years of carbon dioxide that the UK has emitted, we store that amount of carbon under the ground here in Caithness and Sutherland, which is why it's so important we look after these peatlands, because if we start to drain them or historically plant trees on them, um, these emissions start to go back into the atmosphere. We also have a lot of potential for growing more trees, capturing more uh, carbon um, from those trees, and then using those trees and kind of um, to replace concrete and plastic and storing that carbon in the buildings that we build itself. Um, on the second front, we have a whole bunch of renewable energy, renewable electricity mainly, that we've already built out. We also have a huge amount of potential, both onshore and offshore, to rapidly and radically increase the amount of electricity that we produce. So here in Highlands, for example, we're actually Scotland's energy powerhouse. We're the largest producer um, of renewable electricity in the whole of Scotland. Scotland's almost at 100% of electricity from renewables, and the Highland region produces around 26 to 27% of that. Highland region, believe it or not, actually produces about 430% of the electricity that we actually use. What's really fascinating is that we all hear the Orkney example quite often about how they produce uh, over 100% of the electricity that they use. Um, they're in a really interesting example because they can't export that electricity south, so they have to do something with it. Whereas in Highland, we actually go quite under the radar because all our electricity, excess electricity, just gets um, transported south. So that's interesting. So how, how is Orkney making all that electricity? So they're a blend of onshore wind, tidal um, and kind of wave um, depending on how many devices they've got um, stuck in at any time. Whereas in Highlands we're predominantly onshore wind and hydro. Wow so if you flick a switch in Orkney it's it's all guaranteed to be coming from renewable sources. Yep um, exactly that. If you flick your switch in Highland region it's guaranteed to be coming from renewable sources and will be guaranteed to be exporting about three or four times as that much south as well. 
Uh, and does that work out as a positive for the for the region that energy export, or does does that you just don't see that coming back again? Really good question, and it depends how you approach the answer. Um, so we have, um, for example, a lot of guys working um, on onshore wind turbines, operating and maintaining them. We have people working at Neg or in Invergordon at the um, at the the yards um, and offshore, kind of um, um, servicing and um, building these. Um, so we do see some benefit. On the other hand, we don't see as much benefit as we might want to see. So, for example, here in the North Highlands, we actually, uh, or the Highlands and Islands, we pay the most per unit uh, of electricity in the whole UK. Um, so we actually are producing loads and loads and loads of zero carbon electricity. Um, but then when we have to pay for it at a consumer end, we're paying a lot more for it than uh, elsewhere. So that then leads to the highest levels of fuel poverty and the highest levels of extreme fuel poverty here in the Highlands and Islands. Highest in Scotland? In the UK. In the UK. Goodness me. Right. So I think I said I wasn't an expert in this, but so that sounds like you're, it's being made on your doorstep and then you're buying it back from someone further. And to the higher costs must be accounted for in something in that. What is that? The infrastructure to getting it to you, I suppose. And you clearly you can't run out and put some crocodile clips around the uh, wires at the base of the of the turbines out in your back garden and run it through the back window. It's a funny joke, but people are starting to think about it. So one of <laughs> the ways that yeah, one of the ways that we're looking to um, kind of approaching is the idea of a private wire and private purchase agreement, whereby we bypass the grid completely and all the costs associated with that, and effectively, as you said. Um, crocodile clips on a private wire to your home or to your community or to your factory, to your industry. Um, the only problem is those wires and crocodile clips cost a lot of money. So you need to be able to do it on a scale where, um, yeah, where it makes sense. I bet. So um, you mentioned Tidal there as well. And this is one of those things that as a um, occasional watcher of the news I've been interested in over the last 15 years or so, which feels like it's gone from... Uh, it's one of those ideas that is kind of sci-fi, but also very obvious at the same time. You know, you just stand on the beach. That's a lot of very heavy water moving up and down. You know, how, how do you harness it? So is that working? Is that harnessed now? Yeah, it's um, a, it's a, a challenge because everybody looks at the sea and sees the tides coming in and out and thinks, um, I think, quite the common sense um, idea that we should be harnessing that. And it makes a lot of sense. Huge bodies of water shifting, um, excuse me, back and forth. Um, when the, we start kind of um, getting into the technical challenge, though, it becomes more complex in that we need to be capturing large bodies of water um, shifting back and forth on a really large scale, which is why we might come up with the idea of tidal barrages in Perths. Here in Scotland, we've kind of uh, approached the question um, differently and looked at where we have large bodies of water shifting between quite small areas. So what this does is it ramps up the speed of the water and makes it easier to extract the energy from that water. So the prime example um, at the moment is where we have the Atlantic meeting the North Sea between the Pentland Firth, between Caithness and Orkney effectively. And these two really large bodies of water are squeezed between the landmass between Caithness and Orkney. Um, that ramps the speed up quite a lot and makes it a lot easier to extract the energy effectively um, with underwater wind turbines. So what we've got between the island of Strom and Caithness um, in the inner sound where the, wind, uh, where the water speeds are some of the fastest in the world is we have four uh, turbines, again, look like wind turbines, just whacked on the seabird, seabed, capturing the tides as they go back and forth and back and forth. Um, and that's actually the world's largest tidal stream array with plans to make it a lot bigger. Wow. So, I mean, I've been on a ferry across that body of water and I can confirm there's a lot of energy in it. It was um, it certainly could, it certainly moved me. <laughs> It's amazing to see. Um, what's really interesting as well is that each little body of water, not just the Firth itself, not just the inner sound, um, but different parts of the Firth all have local names, whether it's the Merry Men of May or different, um, different bodies of water moving in different ways um, have 
have their own local names, which um, is reflective of the, the, the history of the area and it being sea crossing. Um, and if we think of kind of Orkney and Caithness's um, prehistoric heritage, um, that body of water has been travelled for thousands and thousands of years. By brave people, right? To, can you try and imagine doing that in a coracle? Oh, I wouldn't do it in a dugout canoe. Um, I must, and it's maybe embarrassing to admit, but that's the only sea crossing I've ever been seasick on. Right. Well, I mean, I've got quite a few to my name in places I've uh, <laughs> contributed to the local ecology. Uh, that's one of them. It's uh, it's quite a place. Yeah, amazing. Um, so, and it's an exciting vision, I think, of the future, isn't it, of a, of a carbon net zero, I mean, better than net zero, from what you're saying, um, place to, to live and work, where this, um, you can access directly these uh, the energy sources that are not contributing to the global climate crisis. Definitely. It's one of the things that took me back home to the Highlands. So like many other young people, I left to go south to go to university. Um, but I saw an opportunity within the energy sphere um, to come back home to the Highlands and also work in a really trendy, really cutting edge um, um, industry whereby we were actually at the centre um, or the centre of the world and um, world leading, which I thought was really cool. And it kind of flips this perception of the Highlands on its head from being quite a traditional um, um, slower way of uh, life into this really kind of vibrant region that has a whole lot to offer the world. I think that's a really appealing vision. Um, now, would you say that it has a lot to offer beyond the world as well? So I've, um, you're not the only person to spot it as an exciting place to move to. Um, I've seen there's quite a lot of headlines at the moment about space in the Highlands yeah. too. So we um, we've actually just lost in Caithness our airport at Wick. So we used to be able to fly from Aberdeen or to Aberdeen and to Edinburgh. However, we've uh, um, lost both operators of those flights. Luckily for us, we soon will be able to take a space rocket um, up into space, though. That's not quite us. But yes, um, Sutherland, the, the UK government and uh, working with Highlands and Islands Enterprise um, has chosen uh, the Moyne in Sutherland as the, the, the candidate for the first UK vertical um, launch site, which is hugely interesting, if not a little bit controversial. So, I mean, I can imagine, so I can imagine a con controversy from that in uh, as a kind of, um, yeah, and Maybe this isn't quite me, but I could imagine being a person who would look at this pristine, natural, untouched environment. You just told me this is all absolutely nonsense, but you know that's what <laughs> out the window of my car. That's that's what I that's what I perceive, and I, I'm driving around feeling good about myself in my Range Rover. I, I don't have a Range Rover. Again, I'm imagining myself as the kind of person I am. Um, I'm trying not to be. Looking out of this scene, think, ah, oh, beautiful, natural, pristine. Hang on, there's a rocket. There's a spaceport. What is this? Is that is that the controversy or is that just a surface level? Yeah, that's, um, well, in my opinion, I think that is what um, a lot of the, the controversy has come from. I think as well, there's been a lot of misunderstanding about what actually um, a, a vertical launcher, we, we can call it spaceport for short, what a spaceport actually is. I think yeah. when somebody says spaceport to me straight away, I think of Cape Canaveral and these huge launch towers, sprawling expanse of um, in industrial development, effectively. That's what I'm what thinking. We've, what we've got in Sutherland is actually a really nice, really small um, scale site. So we, we're, we'll be seeing infrastructure um, around, I think, 10 acres it is, including some of the roads going in. But what you've got is you've got kind of a small launch control building that's built into the hillside. Um, you have kind of a wee hangar and some uh, a, a kind of wee, a small launch pad, um, make, kind of launching rockets that are very not big. Um, it's probably the best way of putting it. These are small scale rockets sending very small satellites to space. The size of the satellites is kind of usually given as the size of an iron brew can. Um, Compared to some of the wind turbines around this site, yeah, it, it's not big at all. Um, it's, and it's, it's really nicely going to be built into the, the environment, judging by the plans. And is, the, is the, the draw of the location, this 
same as the nuclear sites and that it's far away from population centers in case it drops on somebody's head or is this to do with being you're so far north you're closer to space you know I've, i'm misunderstanding something about that yeah so it's it's more the latter the 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 way that these um the rockets um or the the use of the rockets it's really advantageous to be as far north as possible so sutherland offers quite a few benefits because of this furthest north you can really get on the mainland to send these rockets to space that kind of go around and i'm pointing here and i'm realizing you won't see me on the video but effectively these rockets will go around the earth once every 24 hours but they'll stay in the same location um, or above the same point of earth throughout that 24-hour period so what we use these satellites for is taking photos of the same spot over this uh, periods of time so we can use these satellites for various things and um, some of it's perhaps monitoring the impacts of climate change it could be desertification it could be flooding um, it could also be um, governments using it as surveillance satellites um, so that's one of the controversies here in, um, in uh, Sutherland as well is what rocket uh, what the satellites are going to be used for but to go back to the original point yep it's uh, as far north possible to get these uh, rockets to space easily um, you're also sending the rockets out over the sea rather than human populations so it does go back to that whole dunary thing again it also goes back to the socio-economic impact um highlands and islands enterprise were just really keen um to get new industry new jobs into the area to help um believe it or not to, to compensate for the closure of dunary over the next kind of 10 15 years I mean, it's actually I'm quite I'm really excited about that idea. Uh, I'm a little bit disappointed it's not going to be Cape Canaveral because I had imagined, you know, parking up at Betty Hill and then seeing over the horizon, you know, a huge kind of Saturn V style launch with the kind of plumes of smoke going uh, in all directions. But um, I, I think it's something really appealing. I mean, it adds to the sense of this being an exciting and dynamic place, I think, doesn't it? Just on a kind of, yeah. you know, marketing level, spaceport. Oh, Definitely. There's two aspects as well to that from a personal point of view. The first of which is that the, the, um, there was a number of operators um, looking to launch out of there. One was Lockheed Martin and one is um, Orbital um, or Orbex, sorry. So Lockheed Martin have now shifted their ambition to Shetland because um, Sutherland didn't quite provide what they were looking for. Orbex, um, who are the company now who will be launching from Sutherland, are a really interesting company based in Forest, um, so based in Scotland, launching rockets that are really environmentally friendly. So they use um, biofuels to launch into space. Oh, wow. They use 3, 3D printed engines. Um, they, um, they're just a really interesting company, kind of pushing the boundaries um, in what can be done in a sustainable manner. Um, and also, by the removal of Lockheed Martin in Shetland, we might also lose some of the criticism of these satellites being used by governments, um, as opposed to um, for, for um, kind of better, um, shall I say, um, purposes. So it's a really complex set of issues uh, in all that, o overlapping the local jobs and the use of the, use of the environment and what, it, what it's for. Um, I mean, does it all point to a coherent view of the economic future of the area? I mean, what am I trying to say? Is there a con is there a conflict between uh, industrialization and these newer things and a tourism slash eco economy? Are those things pushing in different directions? I just everything is interwoven. So um, what I find really interesting, go back to the Orbex point of view, is you have this really high tech company trying to do um, do what we need to do in terms of getting these satellites to space in a really interesting eco manner with the biofuels, with the 3D printed engines. On the other hand, people are just going to see incoming industry into this um, kind of nice environment as that incoming industry that might have conflicts with other land uses. Um, not to forget that on one side of the rocket launch site, we've got Dunray and five nuclear reactors. On the other side, We've got Cape Wrath, where they keep dropping um, thousand-pound bombs. We've also got onshore wind. We've also got a um, 
kind of quite a bit of industrial activity on the north coast. It's not a pristine wilderness by any any um, case. I, I mean, another thing I would say, I mean, I, I don't know, um, this may be outside of your range of professional expertise, but, you know, as a, as a human being, some of this stuff looks quite good, right? So I think for me, there's a real interesting overlap between energy and, um, and aesthetics of it. So we talked about forests starting off. Like I quite like looking at forests. and turns out they're huge sources of energy. The wind farms, there's something I think they look great. It's majestic as you're driving, driving through them. And the oil rigs, I think, have this real, they kind of offset the landscape in the, in the Cromarty Firth. And I mean, the, and the hydroelectric power, I mean, you stand on top, they're obviously, I mean, they're works of art, these things. And they've got lots of, I mean, is that, is that a consideration or am I, am I totally off, off beam here? I, there's no question really, but like, they're great, aren't they? I think it's my question. Not a professional point of view, but from a personal point of view, I absolutely love them. Um, the juxtaposition of these kind of this infrastructure um, that's kind of framed against these wide open expanses, for example. So around the flow country, we have some wind farms that um, I think really frame the landscape. They're really interesting. The oil rigs, for, I grew up around the oil rigs, so I've been around them my whole life. Um, I find this kind of fascinating industrial landscape um, that's kind of found within this wider, amazing looking, if you think of the hills and um, the, the suitors, for example, um, I find it really vis visually appealing. The hydro dams are, as you say, just a work of art. The Art, de the art Deco nature of the, the buildings, the turbine halls themselves, just amazing. But saying that, um, yeah, I do totally understand that people hold the opposite view to me here. Um, and some people really don't like the look of them. Some people perceive them to be um, spoiling the landscape. That is an entirely justifiable position to hold. I just don't agree with it. Yeah, of course. I mean, they're just, it's, you know, it's uh, different points of view, isn't it? I just wonder if we're going to see the day where you have a, a whiskey bottle with a label on it with um, with a wind farm or you know, something to oh, show right. that will become that emblematic of the of the area. I think that would be really cool. Um, to be honest as well, I find wind turbines easier to look at than oil rigs because of that whole aspect. It's, it offers a, a, a positive future rather than looking backwards. Um, what's really interesting in the, the Cromarty Firth with the, the, um, the shift to net zero future and offshore wind, um, over the next 10, 20 years, we'll probably see the oil rigs go but we won't see structures go. We'll still see um, wind turbines. There's the idea that floating wind turbines will just be towed back to the first to be serviced. Um, whether or not that happens in the future, we'll wait to be seen. But yeah, um, it's always going to be an industrial landscape. Just the industry will move from dirty polluting oil and gas into kind of cleaner renewable energy technologies, which I'm really happy about because I look at these landscapes and I see jobs and um, the economy effectively um, they're not empty and devoid yeah and uh, it's exciting isn't it and a knowledge economy and people from all over the world mixing with people who've uh, were born and grown up there you know shoulder to shoulder with people who just flown in from the other side of the world feels like an, oh. uh, and I, you know, I've seen that in on the streets you know people hanging around it's, it's interesting definitely and um, particularly in the more peripheral areas of the highlands we have a huge problem in that we have an aging population and a population that's declining at a rapid rate so in caithness we're forecasted to lose our over 20 percent of our population in the next 20 years in sutherland we're looking at losing around 13 percent of the population in the next 20 years we're desperately in need of people new people new people moving in um, and the energy industry very much offers those opportunities. Um, it, yeah, it's great to see. I, I work in a really diverse um, uh, um, international research institute here in Thurzo um, with a multitude of um, really interesting people from all across the world who have come to make this place their home because it's the best place in the world to be to do the research that they do. I think it's fascinating, absolutely brilliant, um, and just really nice to have um, in kind of more rural area, um, kind of um, different cultures and different ideas and different ways of looking at things coming in. I think it really adds to the area. Great. I mean, that sounds, it's a really compelling vision that you've painted there of a, uh, a future looking, vibrant, dynamic, energy focused economy in place. Um, yeah, I'm going to look at it differently next time I drive past these, uh, these wind turbines and look at the 
oil rigs, I feel like I'm going to see a different level. So that's that's fantastic. Um, if people want to know more about this or want to know more about you or the project, how can they um, how can they keep in touch? Um, they're more than welcome I, to follow me on any kind of um, social media. I am a big fan of using Twitter. Um, you can follow me at, at Davids and Magnus. Um, you can find me just through my um, Environmental Research Institute profile on our website. Um, stop me in the street. Um, shout at me across the um, past the wind turbines. Just anyway, yeah, more than happy to always speak and answer questions on these issues. Um, yeah, my contact details are easily found online, um, or even through the, the the Far North website. I'm sure. Yep, there'll be all the details will be in the uh, the show notes here and on the website. Um, Magnus, that's been a really great tour from Neolithic forests to spaceports and everything in between. So thanks very much for your time. That's great. No problem. Thank you very much for having me. sorry i couldn't be there because that was that was really interesting yeah it was great to talk to magnus i mean it was so wide-ranging i just had no idea how much energy there is to be extracted from the highlands and islands and i hadn't really thought of it as an uh, yeah magnus said it's an energy region yeah in particular i I mean i was stunned and i I don't really know why i suppose maybe because the narrative is that we've got this kind of energy crisis and so reliant on fossil fuels and we're so far away from getting to a point of self-sufficiency on renewables. I was just so surprised that that the Highlands could be 100% self-sufficient if it wanted to be on, on renewables. That was, yeah, that was really surprising. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I you know, as I said to him, like uh, the spaceport is really exciting, but I had thought it was going to be like a Saturn V launch from Cape Canaveral. Yeah. And again, not something my brain goes to immediately. I think think of space launching and going to NASA and seeing yeah, enormous rocket engines and all sorts of smoke and like grotesque amount of fossil fuels. Um, but this this refinement and you know that idea, the idea of launching satellites the size of an iron brew can um, and being able to do that in a way that's sustainable and not hugely harming to the environment is it's great, I suppose. Yeah, it's great. So I mean, I really would recommend um, following. Magnus on Twitter, that's where I first came across him. He's really interesting in, in these topics. To um, there's some, some a lot of depth in what he puts out about the uh, lot issues relating to a lot of topics around the, the society and economy of the Highlands and Islands. So I'd really recommend following him. Um, you should follow us as well. You can find Far North on all the social media that you'd expect, unless you expect us to find us on TikTok, in which case you'll be sorely disappointed. <laughs> Um, but we're definitely there on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you search Far North, you'll find us. And please, please, as we continue to grow and bring you more and more stories of people and culture from the Far North, please tell your friends about us, refer us. And when you're on those platforms, if you like what you hear, um, it will mean the world to us if you can stick in a quick review, preferably with quite a lot of stars on it. Um, and if you don't like what you hear, likewise, get in touch with us, tell us. Um, it's the engagement and the conversation about this part of the world that we um, value and um, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, really, we're really enjoying getting feedback, comments, people emailing in is great. So you can drop us an email at hello at farnorth.scot and check out the website www.farnorth.scot for loads more content. We've got articles, we've got some history, we've got some culture, there's um, photos, go and check it out. And in the meantime, I'm off to find Maureen. Uh, I'll uh, see if I can see Beryl.